You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. More than a few people get to the end of their lives and discover that they have more than a few regrets. When asked about those regrets, people often say things like this, I regret focusing on my job more than my family. Other people say, I regret not being a more courageous person. Others say, I regret not doing more to cultivate friendships and important relationships. Others say, I regret spending so much time on social media. There are other regrets. You might have some to add to the list that uh, come to your thoughts from time to time, but uh, when you search it out, those are the kinds of things that tend to come together. They tend to focus on relationships, family, ministry, courage, passion. What's striking about these statements when we Think about them alongside a text like 2 Timothy chapter 4, these last few verses, 9 through 22, is that while the Apostle Paul is preparing for the reality of his death, and you read this, it sounds like this is not far away. In fact, he hopes Timothy will show up before winter because in the, in, in the Mediterranean, in the ancient world, you don't travel in winter because things get really dangerous. Because he... Paul hopes Timothy comes because it seems to imply that he's concerned about not being alive after that. So he wants him to come. He's thinking about his death. But the thing that strikes in this passage is that he prepares for his death with no indication at all of regret. It doesn't mean that he's lived a sinless life. He'll be the first one to tell you that he has been the chief of sinners. But at this point, at this place, as he reflects on the end of his life, he does so without regret. Which makes me wonder, will I be able to do that? And I wonder if we could ask that question. And I wonder if we could be there with Paul in this place, if we could be the ones who come to visit him with Luke And maybe some of the others, Timothy, if he gets there in time. I wonder if we could be in that space visiting him during this final imprisonment. What sorts of questions we would ask about those very kinds of things. I wonder if we would ask him, Paul, how is it that you face death with such confidence? Isn't it scary? Isn't it fearful? Isn't it unknown to you? How do you face death with such confidence? And what's the key, Paul? especially given our many shortcomings, what's the key to dying without regret? What's the key? And I suspect Paul would have an answer for us, and I suspect his answer would be something like this, because this is what arises out of 2 Timothy as a whole in these final verses themselves. I suspect he would tell us a life lived for the gospel will be a life lived without regret. A life offered to Jesus thoroughly, with nothing held back, 
is the key to coming to the end and not saying, here's my list of regrets. And I think that's where we want to be. I mean, how many of us would say, no, I'm good with regret. I'll get around to the end. I'll... Yeah, regret's fine. As long as I have tons of money, I'm good with the regrets. Very few people say things like that. And I don't think we'll be saying things like that as we near that season of our own lives. So what does a life lived for the gospel look like for Paul and for us? Because if the life offered to Jesus and to the gospel is crucial for being free from regret, then we need to reflect on what that looks like. And when we look at Paul, we see someone who is deeply dependent on Jesus in every aspect of his life, but particularly dependent on Jesus in the unique trials that come with the approach of death. Because there are unique trials, like different seasons of life come with different sorts of difficulties and challenges, trials we call them. But that season leading up to death can come with some unique trials. Now, let me just say, I know, like, <laughs> I almost feel like it's important just to say this. This may feel deeply uncomfortable for some of us. Because like, we, we don't just sit around and talk about death very much. Uh, we avoid the issue as much as possible. It's sort of encapsulated in funeral homes where we sort of like, take the bodies of those we love that are gone and make them up to hide the effects of death. And everyone who ever shows up will say, oh, they look just like themselves, but they don't. And it's really one of the, just this, this consistent reminder that we avoid this as much as possible. Like nobody looks natural, no matter how natural we try to make them. And we avoid this topic and we get there, but, but, but at the same time, faithful Christianity will challenge us and ask us to reflect on, what does my life look like? And am I making decisions now that will give me peace later? Am I making decisions now that will be a comfort to my family, to my children, when they're gathered around my casket? Will they say, thanks be to God, my dad chose to spend that time with me instead of putting in overtime? Or will they say, man, I wish my dad had spent that time with me? That's important. It's crazy important. And the scriptures invite us to ask those kinds of questions. So what are the unique trials different seasons of life come with different sorts of trials but there's a unique set of trials that come with that period leading up to death and many of you are aware of this not because you're in that period but because you've cared for people who are in that period perhaps a parent or a grandparent some of the trials that come with death are physical trials aren't they as uh, people Near the end of their lives, they frequently experience different physical incapacity, incapacitation. Uh, and they experience weakness. Many of us have been in the room as a pastor. I'm frequently around as uh, people 
enter into the months leading up to the end of their life. And physical weakness is always or is frequently a part of that. I have a, my first encounter with this was when I was a teenager, probably 18 years old, uh, when one of my grandfathers began to succumb to cancer. And when you're 18, you're invincible, right? Play a little football, you work out, you, you know, like you're not thinking about death. And then when you have that initial experience of someone you love going through this period of just incapacitation that will end with their death, it slams you in a way other things don't. And so my grandparents lived in Huntsville, and my brother and my mom, our family went up one weekend after my grandfather had gone on hospice just to kind of be there. This was several months before he passed away, but he was getting weaker and weaker. And uh, they decided to give the nurse the night off, and so I stayed uh, the evening with my grandparents. And it was, uh, it's difficult to even find the right word. It was an emotionally severe experience to watch a man who in his life wielded influence and wealth and strength and authority and respect. It was a stunning experience for me to watch someone like that have to have his undergarments changed. Because he couldn't roll himself over. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you are deeply aware of the unique physical trials that come as we face the end of life or we walk with those we love as they face the end of life. There is pain, there is suffering, it is real. Unique trials come in the form of emotional trials, don't they? We experience anger at the prospect of death. Others experience depression at the prospect of death. Many experience despair. Those who are dying experience humiliation, whether it's in the hospital or in their home. And there are unique experiences that only come with the approach to the end of life. The physical and emotional trials are prominent, that's to say nothing of the spiritual trials. Do I trust God to walk me through this? Do I trust God to carry me to glory? Because there's nothing like <laughs> coming to this season in life to prompt me to ask, do I really believe the things I've said I believe for decades? And we give thanks to God 
that same night when I was up around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning with my grandfather. And he and I never had lots of spiritual conversations. That was one of the difficult things about our relationship. He was, that, like, that component wasn't, wasn't there to that extent. But in the middle of the night, as I was worried about, you know, do I need to, like, talk to my granddad about Jesus? Like, we've never had this conversation. What's going on? I don't know how to approach it. I'm only 18 years old, and this is this crazy thing, and there's all this, there's, like, all of this. And in the middle of the night, <laughs> he gasped out these words. He said, Matt, tell him I'm going home. And in that moment of this what I think was for him and for me to some degree a spiritual trial. Like the Lord Jesus met both of us, I believe. Uh, and I found myself at a place of very deep peace. And some of my fears and questions comforted. Because in that moment where I was afraid and of whether the Lord would even carry us through this night that he met us there, and a dying man ministered to me more than I could even begin to think I was ministering to him. So those trials are there, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, all of these things. And Paul himself undoubtedly faces those trials. I mean, you listen to the way he talks. You listen to this experience of feeling abandoned. People I've trusted are gone. This guy Demas he mentions. If you read through Colossians, you hear about Demas in Colossians. And he's one of the people that Paul describes favorably. He's a part of the team. He's engaged. He's a part of the ministry. And now he's deserted Paul. Why? Because he loves the world more than the gospel. You think Paul is battling depression? Absolutely. You think he's dealing with the challenges that come with that unique period at the end of his life? Absolutely. But in the midst of it, you hear him say things like this in verse 17. After everyone deserted him, everyone, this is what he says, the Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me and gave me strength. Paul celebrates in this moment as as his death awaits him in verse 17, that the message has been proclaimed to the nations. And he declares his unswerving hope in verse 18, that the Lord will rescue him from every evil attack and save him for his heavenly kingdom. And that's not saying he'll deliver me from death. It's saying he'll deliver me through it. He will bring me into his presence. He will bring me into the manifestation of his kingdom. That even if this ends as I expected to with my death, Jesus stands by. What does a life live for the gospel look like? It is a life of utter confidence in Jesus. All the way to the point of death. And here's the thing, because you might be saying, you know, I'm 30. I don't have to worry about this for a while. Or I'm 22, or 17, or 12. (laughs) 
You don't get to a place at the end of your life where you can say, Jesus stood by me, thanks be to God, and gave me strength when everyone else failed me. You don't get to a place in your life where you can say, the Lord will rescue me from every opposition and bring me into His kingdom because you started yesterday. This kind of posture, this kind of life, this kind of preparation for death starts decades ahead of time. Decades. It starts with 18-year-olds who think they're invincible. It starts with 20-somethings who haven't even begun to think about what it looks like to care for parents at the end of their life, let alone their own end of their life. It runs all the way through middle age. We start having those midlife crises. And we start thinking, well, this stuff will fix the problem. These creature comforts will fulfill me. Jesus will fulfill me. And Jesus will prepare me now to be faithful then. And I worry, especially in a culture that is unwilling often to talk about the reality of death, and the idea of dying well probably isn't even a category for most of us. The church's failure to offer shepherding and scriptural reflection and teaching probably puts most of us in a position where it's going to be really hard to live like this at the end. This is one reason we work through whole books of Scripture, because we'd probably skip this passage if we had our druthers. <laughs> but when we work through the whole text, every verse, we have to deal with everything Jesus gives us. Even, if, even things that make us somewhat uncomfortable. And here's the thing. Usually the things that make us most uncomfortable are the most important things we can be looking at. And so the Lord wants to work, because the Lord wants us when those trials arise, to be able to say with Paul, Jesus stands with me. He wants us to have that confidence in Christ, the apostle does. He wants us to be able to celebrate the message has been proclaimed. The work has been done. The gospel has been preached. Disciples have been made. And when we had the opportunity to influence our little corner of the world for the kingdom of God and the glory of King Jesus, we did it. That's what I want to be able to say when that day comes. I hope it's what you want to be able to say too. A life lived for the gospel is a life lived without regret. It is a life of other-oriented love for Jesus, a life of self-giving love for Jesus and for others. And that's really the posture. I mean, he doesn't like articulate it that way in this text, but that's his posture, isn't it? In this passage, as he nears the end of his life, his focus is on Jesus and the Gentiles. He's warning Timothy 
He's offering him encouragement. He writes this letter because with his final days, he desires to give everything in his heart to strengthen the ministry of the gospel for the church that is to be planted and grown after he's dead. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes we get more worried about the church now than the church later. And here's Paul saying, you know what? I'm not going to waste my time arguing about insignificant things when I can give my last breath to making sure tomorrow's leader, Timothy, has everything he needs to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to the mission and fruitful in his work. There's this posture of thoroughgoing, other-oriented love. He's not saying, here are my needs at the end of my life. He's not saying, here's what I want. What does Paul prefer? He prefers that the church be effective. What does he want? He wants Timothy to be fruitful. What does he want? He wants the kingdom to advance. And he's given his life for it, and he'll die for it too. He doesn't kind of slide into the end of his life and say, you know, I've paid my dues. I deserve some things. To the very end, he embodies the mind of Christ. The mind that Christ embodied on his own cross, at his own death, when his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Jesus died with no regrets, which means he now lives in his resurrected body with no regrets. And he lived a life marked by love for his father, love for his disciples, despite their disastrous postures towards him. <laughs> we don't have time to rehearse the absolute mess those guys were. We could be grateful for that because if we did, it would remind us what absolute messes we are. We can be grateful that the Lord Jesus Christ offers, offered himself for our broken hearts and minds, for our rebellious postures. He offered himself for us. He embodied perfect love. Self-giving love. Love that is always oriented towards the other. Paul embodies that same love. Jesus, Timothy, for the church. That's what a life lived worthy of the gospel looks like. That's what a life lived for the gospel looks like. And if we desire, in the end, to have no regrets... That's the way to do it. I don't want to come to the end and say, you know, I wish I'd used that time that I had for the gospel. The time given to Christ and his mission, we won't regret it. We'll never regret anything we offer to Jesus. I was struck during our services this week. Josh, I'm going to brag on you a little bit. 
as we were kind of praying at the end, Josh made the statement, you'll never regret humbling yourself. That just hit me in the face. Because it's hard to humble ourselves. Crazy hard. And I'm reading through this text this week, and I'm thinking about what it looks like to come to the end and what it looks like to live a life without regrets. And then my colleague says, you'll never regret humbling yourself. And that's really what the gospel calls for, isn't it? A posture of humility. Self-lowering before Jesus. And when that happens, he is able to make us fully alive and fully ready for every trial in this season or the next. As we hold back from him, we hold out control. If we're unwilling to humble ourselves, if we're unwilling to, 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 to allow him to give us this thoroughgoing posture of other-oriented Self-giving love. When we come to the place Paul has come to, we will undoubtedly come with regrets. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. So I'm wondering if we can open ourselves to Jesus in such a way that he can come in and enable that humility, that posture. Can we let him have every aspect of our, all the places in our hearts that we hold back, can he just, can he have those? So that he can flood them with his perfect love. Fill it up. So that it overflows into our families and into our colleagues and into our friends and our Sunday school classes and our small groups and our are the people who work for us and the people we, we, we hunt with and the people we play golf with and the people that, all of the people. Can it just overflow in that way? And if it does, if our lives are offered to Jesus that way, I guarantee you, when you come to the end, you will not be the person saying, I regret fill in the blank. So what are the dangers then? Like if that's the positive vision, if that's what it looks like, life lived for Jesus, life lived for the gospel, life of self-giving, other-oriented, Christ-like, Trinitarian love. If that's what it looks like, like what are the dangers? And he hits the dangers here, doesn't he? Like he's got some warnings, he's got some, you better watch out for this, because if you do this, it will lead to regret. We talked about Demas already. People who've abandoned Paul. He also mentions this guy, Alexander the coppersmith. You don't want to be that guy because you get written down in the Bible forever <laughs> as having, let me, what, how does he put it? He did great harm. Now the striking thing about Paul is he's able to, he's able to name these like people who aren't there, but what you don't hear is a desire for revenge. He acknowledges in Alexander's case that God is just and God will deal with him. But you don't have Paul wishing ill. You don't have Paul saying, those 
can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe Demas, he was with me and we were working together and I, I love that guy and I gave him so much of my energy and I gave him so much of my life and I, I put resources into him. I gave him time and he just left me behind. No, ah, like that's not his tone, is it? He mourns the fact that Demas is gone, but he doesn't desire retribution. There's nothing in his voice that says, I hope he gets his. There's sorrow, but you don't hear Paul seeking revenge. That's convicting for me because all too often when I feel like someone's done me wrong, one of my first impulses is, how can I show them? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but anybody been there? <laughs> the, 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 the chuckles tell me you have. <laughs> like we're the, It's easy, isn't it? Somebody said something about me. Somebody did something. Somebody cut me off. I don't even know that person. They cut me off in traffic. I can't stand them anymore. Like we easily slide into revenge mode. And here's Paul at the end of his life. Abandoned by so many people. He's on trial. He shows up for his trial. Nobody's there. No retribution. No wishes of ill will. Sorrow. Lament. But no retribution. You want a surefire way to get to the end of your life and have regrets? Live a life driven by a desire for revenge. I'll show them. I'll get them. I'll let them know how much they hurt me. They will feel the pain. That's a temptation. It's a temptation that could easily be present for Paul. But thanks be to God, Jesus gives him strength in that time of temptation and we don't hear him wishing for retribution against those who have done harm to him or abandoned him. Another temptation that can steer us away from a gospel, a life lived for the gospel, is loneliness. This is way more of a big deal than it was even a few years ago. Because when we came through the pandemic, a lot of people felt very isolated, and the loneliness issue charted way up. This is a very big deal now because social media, <laughs> with all the connectedness, makes us feel more disconnected than we ever have in our lives. More and more people can't even carry on a basic conversation because we're so just in tune with media that we've we, we have barriers with people. And so here's Paul. He has friends, but some of them haven't been able to make it yet. Luke is around, thanks be to God. Timothy he longs to see. Others have abandoned him. Some he's sent off to ministry. And he could be in that place, in that dungeon, at the end of his life, in a pity of loneliness. But he doesn't give himself to that, does he? That sense of self-pity. Instead, he gives himself to Jesus. He could be tempted by the fear of death. 
do I really believe the gospel I've preached? I've been going around the Mediterranean talking about the resurrection of the dead. Do the words that come out of my mouth reflect the conviction of my heart? Perhaps most importantly, and maybe we'll settle here for a moment, is the temptation of love for the present world. That's Demas' issue, isn't it? Do your best to come to me soon, verse 9, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is so important that the New Testament warns us multiple times about it. You'll remember John 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, desire the flesh, desire the eyes, pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. I suspect this one is particularly severe in terms of temptation for us. Because we live in a context that values comfort, security, influence. We want a good reputation. We want people to think well of us. We want them to think we are well-to-do. And we chase after all of the things that we think will increase our esteem in other people's eyes. Don't. And we put our energy to it. We put our time and our money to those things. And we make sacrifices. Relationships. Not only with family, but with Jesus. And Paul says, that temptation, love for this present world, is directly in contrast with a life lived for the gospel and will ultimately lead to regrets. Deep, deep, deep regret. And it is a question of love, isn't it? Because we give our best to what we love most. Wherever I give my best loves, my best energy, that's what I love. And I wonder how all, like what, like what would it do to all of life if we took our, our best and offered it to Jesus? To our families that Jesus has entrusted to us? To the church that He's commissioned for the sake of His name and for the life of the world? I guarantee you, no one who has sacrificed much for the gospel gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I hadn't done that. No one who sacrifices the comforts of the present world for the gospel of Jesus Christ gets to the end and says, I regret that decision. 
no one. Lots of people. Lots and lots and lots of people. People we know get to the end and say, I wish I'd spent more time doing the mission of the kingdom of God. I wish I'd spent more money doing the mission of the gospel. I wish I'd spent more time. I wish I'd taken my kids on more serve teams. Those of you who went out to First Choice a few weeks ago and scrubbed some baseboards, you'll never regret that. You may have missed kickoff. I don't even remember if there was a ball. I'm sure there was a ball game that day. You may have missed kickoff. You will not regret that at the end of your life. It's so easy for us to be caught up in the values of our culture and think we'll, like, we'll, we may regret in the short term, man, I wish I'd been there for that thing, whatever it was. But over time, in the long run, when we are forced to evaluate things in light of the legacy we leave and our life lived for Jesus or not, we will never, we will never regret the time, the energy, the relationships, and the love offered to the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. We will not regret that. We can also be tempted by indifference. There's a new level of indifference in the last few years in American Christianity. Church attendance is down across the country. Everywhere. Uh, Josh and I were at a thing a couple weeks ago, donuts and dads with our kids at the homeschool thing, and we met a guy who's a worship pastor at the Highlands. He said, we haven't recovered yet. Like even places with like tons and tons and tons of resources and production and money and all the stuff haven't recovered yet. Listen to consultants who work with churches across the country. Hasn't recovered yet. People start asking the question, like, what's going on? Like, are people angry? Are they just, is there this thing? And I was doing some research this week and came across an article that said it's not anger. It's indifference. We sat in our houses for three months and became indifferent to almost everything. Eh, I think we'll regret that in about 30 years. I think we'll regret that. When the time comes when we take stock of our lives and the things that we have come through and the world that Jesus, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, entrusted to us. A pandemic world and a post-pandemic world if we find ourselves apathetic about the kingdom of God, I think we'll regret it. I'll know we regret it. Let's not be indifferent about what matters most. If we find ourselves kind of saying, you know, 
I know Jesus has things for me, but I just kind of feel me. Shouldn't that be a red flag? Shouldn't we feel convicted? Shouldn't our meh be the Spirit of God saying, awake sleeper, awake! And let the light of Christ shine on you and shine through you and transform the world with the beauty of His perfect love. Jesus is not indifferent. The one who reigns on the throne of heaven is not indifferent. He is unswervingly committed to our good to the flourishing of everything He has made. And He will work through those who offer themselves for Him and His gospel. And if we succumb to the temptation of indifference and we miss out on that, the likelihood is great that we will come to the end and we will say, I regret my apathy. I don't want that for any of us. I don't want that for any of us. So what does it look to die? What does it look like to die well? Dying well means living in such a way so you don't have regrets at the end. That means you have to start thinking about dying well decades before it, it comes time to die well, doesn't it? Way early. So here's the thing. It's never too early. And I don't want this to sound like some kind of weird morbidity. The question is simple. When I stand before Jesus, will I stand before Him with confidence and joy and happiness? Or will I stand before Him with regrets? I'm sorry I didn't do that, Jesus. I'm sorry I didn't prioritize that. Now, here, I wish I had. It's never too early. And here's the other thing. It's never too late. You might be saying, like, that season's closer for me than it was a few years ago. And I've got all kinds of regrets. And, I, and when, I, like, when I think about that, I can't help but think about someone like Paul the Apostle who in his first letter to Timothy said, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the one who persecuted the church. I'm the one who persecuted Jesus. But thanks be to God. Thanks for His grace. He's able to take that and transform it and bring someone like Paul, a murderer and a terrorist, to a place where as he nears his death, we don't hear words of regret. We hear words of confidence in Jesus. So it's never too early, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and it's never too late, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds. Do I need to go on? <laughs> it's never too late. Octogenarians, you can Google that later. I don't think we want to be a people who come to the end with regrets, do we? The question for us is whether we're willing to do now what is required 
to make that reality. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.